Welcome back, everybody. Once again, true crime on Easy Street. Are you focused on true crime this week because your brain has been somewhere else for the last month? How did that go? Oh, it was great. We just finished our production of The Little Mermaid Junior. Mm -hmm. I traded you guys in for a room full of middle schoolers. How bad was it? Which is worse? Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was great. We had a really great turnout. It was a great show. Fun times. Uh, uh, times. You sell out all three shows? Uh, we, for the most part? For, almost. We were full yeah. for the matinee, but not quite sold out. I got you. But it was very, very excited. I was very proud of all of our cast members. And I saw them great. on Friday, the, your two main cast members. I happened to walk into the coffee shop, mm-hmm. and you guys were all decked out in your gear. And yep. I guess well, you had a, a meet and greet with the kids. We had, uh, it was called Under the Tea. And we had Ariel and Eric there. Pun intended. Yep. And we had some kids come in with their little Ariel dolls and had some pictures made. And it was. Oh, those kids got to sign autographs, maybe even. (laughs) It was fun. And I made Scott have his picture made with them with the post paper. I loved that picture. All right. It was very (laughs) good. By the way, I'm Kelly Turner and I'm not a doctor. Scott Wright, not a very good journalist. Mediocre, I would say, even. (laughs) Katie Givens, not a lawyer. So we are just fresh off of last week's episode, which, whew, that was rough. Yeah. I don't want to play anymore. It's scary in <laughs> that here one, with that you guys. That one went dark. That one went very dark. Yeah. I mean, they're all, I mean, we have it's, a true crime podcast. Right. We can't necessarily be shocked by the fact that crimes are committed and murders happen. It was mm. just, it just seemed to take it to the next level last week. But this week we're going to... We're going to continue. We're going to dig a little uh, deeper even this week. We are, but I'm excited because we eventually are going to actually get to an Alabama tie with this one. Most yes. people don't know, and I didn't know until yeah. this past week. That will happen today. Me. We will do that today. We have an Alabama tie to this. Yeah. And Scott is ready. You have been re- uh, How long have you been researching this? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and a lot. I mean, every night I go home and I'll, I watch a documentary or I read... A uh, hundred pages in Helter Skelter by Vincent uh, Bugliosi, who is the district attorney who prosecuted Charles Manson for the Tate LaBianca murders. And if you haven't read the title of this episode, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, and and I'm excited to learn this Alabama tie, as I'm sure that a lot of our listeners probably don't know that because mm-hmm. yep. yeah. Charles Manson, the the Manson family, all of that has been talked about, but I think it's been done so much and it's been talked about and over the over the years that it's almost become an urban legend. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that I think people quote report about Manson and the and the murders are in fact urban legend. They're not actually fact. Yeah, facts. and I, I was telling uh, Katie before you got here, I've watched a lot of documentaries uh, and podcasts about mm-hmm. the Tate LaBianca murders in the last couple of weeks. And it seems to me like a lot of them, a lot of these hosts, and I don't want to badmouth somebody else who's out there trying and doing a podcast and doing the best they can, but not a lot of research and not a lot of fact. A lot of folks you can tell immediately did not read Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they pulled something up off of YouTube or uh, from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And that's okay if you're going to do a trivia night, but it's not okay if you're going to try to talk about a crime where people died. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, 50 you, years ago. You better be careful, Scott. You're going to project yourself right out of mediocre and into... Oh. What's the next level of after mediocre? Is eh. it like... <laughs> I think it's eh. Meh. Yeah. yeah. Meh. Let's yeah. do that. You're going to go... I'm a meh journalist. Okay. Well, be careful because you're, you're climbing the ladder. Oh, no. I've left plenty of room in my mouth for my foot today, so don't worry about that. <laughs> we'll just edit those out like we normally do, right, Katie? Exactly. Oh, yeah. I forgot we can do that. <laughs> yeah, people don't know what I'm talking about because... Uh, Katie cuts it all out before it makes it to your ears. Exactly. Y'all are welcome. Yeah. Thank you very much. So I talked to Selena Connolly. She's a friend of the show, I believe. And I talked to her over the weekend and she told me that our good friend Sandy Richardson once, and I think Laura Barrett was involved in this as well, tried to call Charlie Manson one time and talk to him. And I have not called. In in prison? Yes. Yeah. Not before. Uh, I don't think so, but I haven't called Sandy yet. Selena gave me Sandy's number and I already have Laura's number. So I'm going to reach out to both of them this week. So when we do part two next week, mm-hmm. maybe I can, because we're really going to focus on what happened at 10050 CLO drive today. That's the house where the Tate murders took place on August the 9th, 1969. We're going to focus on that house tonight. We will really kind of zero in on the Manson family and the LaBianca murders next week in part two. And then after that, in part three, Katie is going to walk us through the the trial itself, which at the time was one of the longest criminal trials in the history of the country. And it may still be. Lasted over eight months, I think. And when did these murders occur? August the 9th, 1969 is when the Tate murders took place. So we're we're coming up on an anniversary. Yes. Actually, it was yesterday. Yeah. By the time this drops. By the time you hear this, that was yesterday. The anniversary was yesterday. To us, it's tomorrow. To you, it's yesterday. Ooh, so solid I, timing. I, yeah. I'm so curious as to why Sandy wanted to speak with Charles. Nothing Manson. Sandy Richardson does would surprise me. <laughs> I've known her for a long time, but I'm curious to find out the answer myself, I but I'll, I'm not going to be shocked when she tells me. Yeah. I love Sandy. I'm very interested to see yeah. what her motivation was behind speaking with. Charles Maybe Manson. I should call her tomorrow just in case that turns out to be a dud of a lead. And then we can delete all of this crap out before we embarrass ourselves. Maybe I've already put my foot in my no, mouth. No, we'll just, uh, we'll just focus more on <laughs> what's the, uh, what, what's the level of the ladder below mediocre. Yeah. That's, I was going to say back to <laughs> mediocre again. They went meh. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just talk about that. Uh, I one, love that. And one thing I want to say, and I, I, I put this note down the other day, we never talk about our Facebook page. We, we tell everybody how to give us a five-star review and to leave us, uh, you know, uh, some comments so mm-hmm. that we can give you a shout out. But every week we update the Facebook page. Every Wednesday, we're going to show you what the episode's going to be about. So you can follow us on Facebook and you can find out how to, how to find us mm-hmm. and you can find out what we're going to talk about. And uh, we've been doing that since day one, right? We Pretty also much. update Instagram every week. Yeah, that's too. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Katie... Katie takes care of Instagram and well, I take care Kelly of Kelly does a lot of the Instagram. We have oh, okay. had okay. some downright creepy photos on Instagram. Yeah, that's true. Indeed. And I, I try to yes. just stick to like a an ad an advertising card for, hey, here's what we're doing this week. Here's how to find us. And then we they're the same ads that we can put up on the TVs over at Easy Street to let folks who come in, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully they don't see that until after they've eaten, depending on who the topic is this week. But uh, yeah, so that's the same thing. But that's every week on Facebook if you want to check it out. And just follow us and then you'll get those updates and you can be reminded that it's time to tune in for another episode of Tacos, as we call it around here. Well, as you I call do. It. Yeah, Scott nobody calls else does that except me. Yeah. True yeah. crime on Easy Street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It okay. would actually be Ticos. Yeah, but you know, close enough. Okay. Close enough. Actually, sure. it would be Turcos. Ticos. Tur- t- 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 uh, forget t- it. All right, delete that. 
Her, <laughs> no, her first not. job of the day is to delete we're that whole that uh, sure. exchange. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. All right, Scott, I'm very excited. <clears throat> so take it away and give us give us the information. We're dying to know. All right. Dying. So we're going to start this episode at, and you're going to hear me say this several times tonight. After I've said it a couple of times, I'm just going to start saying CLO Drive because it's a mouthful to say 10050 CLO Drive, but that is the residence, the uh, uh, the address of the residence in the Bel Air District of LA, specifically in Benedict Canyon, of where these crimes took place, where the Tate murders took place on in the early morning hours of Saturday, August the 9th, 1969. Okay. So 10050 CLO Drive, there will be a quiz later. <laughs> so jot that down. Uh, that area that I just told you about where that house is located is also a place where a lot of other movie stars, it's a place where you can get away from the city that is directly below you. You have a great view, especially at uh, Cielo Drive. There's a fantastic view of the city of Los Angeles. You can even see all the way out to the ocean if you on a clear day. And back in the 60s, there weren't a lot of clear days, more now than there were then. But a lot of movie stars lived in that area. Charlie Chaplin had a house there. Uh, Rudolph Valentino lived in a house in this area when he was still alive. A lot of famous movie stars lived in this area because it is a, a private, secluded place where you can get away from the hustle and bustle of everything that's going on in Hollywood. But it's also a place where you're isolated. Okay. And sound does funny things in these canyons, and you may scream for your life and no one hears you. Okay. Remember that I said that. I will. So this house, and I want to talk about the house just a little bit, because one thing that I did not see a lot of when I did some research about the Tate murders was the the story of the house itself is very interesting to me. And again, if this sucks, we can just cut it, right? Just go ahead. All right, fine. (laughs) Uh, So the house is built on 3.3 acres in 1941, and it was built by a French actress who came over to America to live during World War II. She wanted to get out of Paris because the war was going on. So she moved over here. She wanted the house to look like something that she was reminded, that reminded her of, of home. So she had someone build a 3,200 square foot uh, home that resembles a 19th century French cottage. Okay. The house isn't there anymore. The house was torn down in 1994. And two subsequent houses have been built there. It's a long story. We're not going to get into that. I was yeah. thinking a three-acre lot in this kind of area Hello. was big. Yeah, big time. Uh, so that house was built in 1941. It resembled a French cottage. It had a big Dutch door, you know, where you can separate the top half and just lean over. They called it a Dutch farm door. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that okay, what? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a stone fireplace. There's a half loft inside the living room. Uh, There's a wishing well outside, trees for shade. It was just a beautiful place. You can find pictures on the internet if you'd like to see what the house looked like. So in 1945, the war has ended. This French actress goes back across the Atlantic to resume her acting career in Paris. And the house is sold to someone else. The house for a lot of the next 20 years is rented to various movie stars who need somewhere to live. Maybe they're in town shooting a film or whatever. Among the people who rented the house, Henry Fonda. Okay. Cary Grant lived there for a while. When he went on his honeymoon with Diane Cannon, when they got married in 1965, they honeymooned at Cielo Drive. Okay. In 1966, the house, I'm sorry, in 1963, the house was bought by an Italian businessman whose name was 
Rudy Altabelli. We're going to say his name a couple of times, but he's not very uh, germane to the story. He did the same thing. There's a guest house over on the edge of the property. A lot of times he would live in the guest house and rent out the main house to these various movie stores. And he traveled a lot into Europe for business. And when he did that, he would typically hire someone to come in and live in his guest house and take care of his dogs mm-hmm. while he was away. Okay. This is going to be the scenario that takes place in August of 1969. Okay. So in 1966, Alta rents the house to a guy named Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher is the son of actress Doris Day. Okay. If you're old enough, you remember who Doris Day is, right? Yeah. Um, he was a music producer, lived in the house with his girlfriend, Candace Bergen. Oh. Remember yep. Murphy Brown? Yes. That's her. Okay. So they lived in the house from 66 until um, January of 69. And again, this is something that we'll touch on more next week. But during the course of that two and a half years that Melcher lived there, he got to know Charles Manson. Okay. Charles Manson got to know Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer for the Beach Boys. Yes. And Terry Melcher was a music producer. Charles wants to break into the music industry. Okay. Uh, I saw one review of some of the things that he had recorded in those years, and they said he was fairly talented amateur musician. Okay, so that's kind of like mediocre. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, he's half-assing it the same way I am. But... uh, he 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 knew where Cielo Drive was. He knew how to get there. He had been to the house on at least one occasion before. So when the night comes for him to tell the four people that he has recruited from his family to go and commit mayhem, he knows exactly where he wants those people to go. He's He knows that Terry Melcher doesn't live there anymore, but to Charlie Manson, that house and whoever lives in it represents the establishment. The people who are successful and famous and popular, the people who are keeping him down as far as he's concerned. He can't break into the music business because nobody thinks he has enough talent. And when he decides that it's time for Helter Skelter, he says, go up to that house and kill whoever you find in it. So this is motivated because he did not get into the music business. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's that's part of the motivation. And also he thinks that he is going to he thinks that there's a racial war coming between blacks and whites in America and the blacks are going to defeat the whites but won't be able to run the show and that's when Charlie's going to step up with his family and rule the world. It's nuts. Oh. But the old, we're dealing with nuts. The old villain rule the world exactly. scenario. Yes, yeah. we've all seen that in the Despicable Me and a couple of other films mm-hmm. that I can think of. Every James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, So that happens in August of 69. But Melcher doesn't live there anymore. He moved out in February. I'm sorry. He moved out in January of 1969. And up and coming European film director, Roman Polanski and his wife of one year, Sharon Tate rent the house Mm -hmm. in February of 1969 for $1,200 a month. Okay. They met in 1966 in Europe filming a movie called The Fearless Vampire Killers, which I tried to find and watch some of, and it's pretty bad. Sounds bad. It's a spoof on vampire killers. It's a, it's, it's a dark comedy about these guys who are trying to learn how to kill vampires that are inhabiting their village. Mm-hmm. It's a dark comedy like in the 60s. and it, Yeah. Is it bad or is it just old? Uh, it's both. Okay. It's old and bad. But Sharon Tate, that was one of her first ever films. 
She doesn't have, she has uh, 12 lines of dialogue I read somewhere. So she, her character gets killed off about halfway through the film. Roman Polanski directs the film, wrote the film, starred in the film. Okay. But that's where they met. That was in 1966. And at the time, Sharon Tate was an up and coming, aspiring young actress. She'd been in a couple of films, but just bit parts. She'd been on Petticoat Junction. She'd had a bit part in the Beverly Hillbillies as a secretary. But she was so nervous and so new behind the camera that one of the things they did when they put Sharon Tate on the screen, they disguised her. They put her in a short black wig just to kind of help her build her confidence before she graduated to more sophisticated things. Uh, And so that was, a lot of people don't even know that they're looking at Sharon Tate when you see this secretary come in. I think she was in 12 or 13 episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay. So she's still learning her trade, but she's over, she's making movies. She's gone to Europe and she's shooting a film with Roman Polanski, Mm -hmm. but she's dating a guy named Jay Sebring. And Jay Sebring is the hairdresser to the stars. He's one of the most well-known hairdressers in Hollywood. He was born in October the 10th, 1933 in Fairfield, Alabama. How about that? So that's, if you don't know the Birmingham area, that is a suburb of the Birmingham area over on the other side of town from where we sit uh, between downtown Birmingham and Bessemer. It doesn't matter, but he, he was born there. His family didn't live there for long. They moved to Michigan. So he grew up in Michigan and his name was Thomas Coomer, K-U-M-M-E-R for all of his life until he moved out to Hollywood and decided to become a hairdresser to the stars. Okay. Among the clients that he coiffed, can I say that word on this podcast? I, I, I guess Jeez. you can try. I uh, hope he, I got yeah. that right. Anyway, Steve McQueen, uh, James Garner, Warren Beatty. Okay. And remember, Warren Beatty does a film called Shampoo in 1972. I think it's 72. About a famous Hollywood hairdresser. Partially based on the J.C. Brink character. Did I say Steve McQueen? Because Steve McQueen was one, of his, uh, was one of his celebrity clients. And the reason that Coomer changed his name to Jay Sebring was because Steve McQueen was into car racing at the time. There's a, there's a race every year in Florida called the 12 Hours of Sebring, and he thought that sounded like a really cool name mm-hmm. to use to establish his career okay. as a hairdresser. I like re- reinventing yourself. Yeah. And this is who is dating Sharon Tate. That is, in 1966, they've been dating for about two or three years. Okay. But she goes over to Europe to film this movie with Roman Polanski, and she falls in love with Roman Polanski. As you do. Yeah. So she calls Jay and breaks up with him over the phone. He oh. flies out to London to try to talk her out of it. The weird thing, or maybe it's not so weird, they end up being very good friends. He even be- becomes friends with Roman Polanski over mm-hmm. the course of the next three years. Mm-hmm. So he still wants to be a-, a close friend to Sharon Tate. Some people speculated that he thinks the marriage isn't going to work out and he wants to stay close. He's going to hover just in case he gets a chance to swoop back in and Mm-hmm. get her off her feet again. The night he died, he had her class ring on a necklace around his neck. The hairdresser. Yes. JC Bring did. Oh my goodness. So that's how close, that's the special friendship that they had. Mm-hmm. And some speculate that it was more, but I didn't see anything. That's just people who think there was a second gunman on the grassy knoll in Dallas in 63. That's those people are idiots as far as I'm concerned. But we won't get into that. Not today. today. 
Maybe um, in November. So, but but and we all know this. Roman Polanski has his own issues. Oh yeah. That uh, yeah, he's we kind might, of a dick. That we might possibly get to eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we understand that that is that Roman Polanski. Yes. And just kind of the one who that. can't come to America. The one who yeah. The and uh, ever again. Right. And so we'll probably cover that eventually. Yeah. But just for just to get that elephant out of the room. That's the guy you we think we're talking that. about. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, if that dirt bag is still alive on the 18th of August, he'll be 89 years old. Ugh. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Okay. Anyway, so the two of them, uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, have moved into Celio Drive. Okay. In February of 1969. In March, the day before they both leave to go to Europe, for four months, she's going to work on a film, her last film before her pregnancy starts to show. Oh, because the same week that she moved into the house, she finds out she's pregnant. Okay. With their first child. All right. They go off to Europe for four months. The day before she leaves, she flies over with Alto Belli because they're both going to Rome. And Alto Belli is the man who owns the house that they're renting. Yes. And he's living in the guest house. The day before that happens, Charles Manson shows up at Celio Drive looking for Terry Melcher. He's mad because he hasn't heard back from him. Mm -hmm. Where's my recording contract? Mm -hmm. They throw him out of the house, Mm -hmm. off the property. And the next day in the plane, Sharon Tate looks over at uh, Rudy Altabelli and said, whatever, what was that weird guy doing at the house yesterday? Mm -hmm. That was Charlie Manson. Mm. And you know, Charlie Manson, it doesn't take you but about 30 seconds Mm. to know that you don't, honestly really want to be in the room with him it's amazing to me and i know we're going to cover a lot of stuff but charles manson was able to brainwash some folks it's amazing to me how because it took me about 30 seconds of just seeing him to know i don't want to be in the room with him yeah it's the eyes it's a frightening eyes. it's an immediate nope Yep, exactly. Absolutely. And even uh, Buliosi in in, uh, Helter Skelter says, you know, in the conversations that he had with Charlie Manson, he said a very engaging personality. He could could win over the room anytime. When he started talking, everybody stopped and started to listen. Mm -hmm. And he just had that uh, magnetism. And he certainly used it on all of these young girls that he picked up in San Francisco in 67 and 68 uh, to turn them in his direction and make them do Crazy things for him, up to and including murder. Yeah. It turns out. So she's asking, what was this? What was this? What did she call him? The weird guy? Just the weird guy. A strange little man, something like that. I forget. But, you know, again, it doesn't take long for you to get that. You said, what, three seconds and you knew it? So did she. Yeah. She knew pretty quickly that there was, that guy was rowing in a circle, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. He did not have both oars in the water. So... So what did he say? What did he say? He was just looking for Terry Melcher and wouldn't take no for an answer. Didn't believe that what he was being told by the person who was telling him. And it was the guy who was there to photograph Sharon Tate in the pool that day. Mm-hmm. A friend of hers who was a photographer who said, look, there's no Melcher here. Go down to the guest house and talk to Antebelli and maybe he can tell you who you're looking for. And they got into an argument and that's when everybody came outside the house to see what the scuttlebutt was mm-hmm. or the, the, the kerfuffle. And it was the four people the four people who were in that house that day were the four people who were in the house on August the 9th, 1969. Okay. And, and those four people were Sharon Tate. Uh, yeah. Sharon Tate was one of them. And Jay Sebring was the other because he spent a lot of time hanging out with Sharon Tate. Okay. In Roman Polanski's absence. Another reason why the rumor mill works the way that it does when it mm-hmm. comes to those two. Mm-hmm. 
There's a guy named Wojtek Frakowski who is 32 years old. He's a friend of Roman Polanski's from Poland. They went to film school together. Okay. But he doesn't really do anything now except sell drugs and make Sharon feel uncomfortable. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, his girlfriend is Abigail Folger. Oh, she's 25 years name. old. Yeah. If you like coffee, you've heard her name and she is the, was the heiress to the Folgers coffee fortune. Okay. So those are the four people who were in the house. They were in the house. All they right. were in the house and, on and March Manson. the 23rd and they were, they were in the house again together on August the 9th. And Manson gets a good look at all of them. He sees all of it. He, he knows that it's not who he thinks. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't believe there. that that dude. So he's I like, think he finally realized, Hey, maybe the guy moved out and he doesn't live anymore. But to Charlie, it didn't matter who died as long as it was somebody who was establishment so that everybody would take notice. Right. And a movie star works just fine for him. Yeah. It turns out. Yeah, it seems so. Okay. So, Sharon Tate is getting very pregnant. She is seven months pregnant when she comes home from her film shoot in Italy. Roman Polanski is still in London working on a script for a film that he's going to direct later. Okay. She comes home in July in time to pile up into the bedroom with her family, her mom and dad and two younger sisters and some other people and watch the news coverage of the moon landings okay. on July the 20th, 1969. That's the only place in the house where there was a television set. So they all piled onto the bed to watch that happen. That was the last time Sharon Tate uh, saw her parents alive mm. or the last time Sharon Tate's parents saw, saw her, her alive. alive. Yes. Mm. To a man, anybody that, tells you anything about the kind of person that Sharon Tate was, we'll say maybe a little naive, but just the sweetest person that you would ever meet. Mia Farrow, we know her, mm-hmm. and well, Woody Allen and all that stuff, but that's another crime Yikes. story for another time. Yikes. But she became friends with Roman and Sharon because she was the star of the film that he directed in 1967 called Rosemary's Baby. Yep, I remember mm-hmm. that film. And Mia Farrow said that Sharon Tate was the kindest, most gentle person she'd ever met in her entire life. A lot of people had these kinds of things to say about Sharon Tate, Mm -hmm. just beauty on the outside and beauty on the inside as well. Well, it seems so. I mean, you've got the, the ex-boyfriend hanging around. Yeah. Wanting to just be with her. Just be around. The director just falling for her. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like everywhere she goes, people just fall for her. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a story that I read somewhere. uh, A reporter was in a restaurant and I'm going to paraphrase because I forgot to write it down, but basically says when Sharon Tate walked into that restaurant, uh, all of a sudden busboys got butterfingers forks are hoisted halfway to open mouths. They can't believe the beautiful thing that's just walked past them. And Sharon is just oblivious to it all. She just walks in and sits down and, and has a meal. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of mm-hmm. effect that she had every time that she went outside or went shopping uh, downtown on Rodeo Drive, she would come back with a handful of business cards and take them to her manager and say, here, these people all say they want me to be in their movie. <laughs> Which probably it was just a bunch of people trying to pick up a hot blonde. Yeah. Casting well, couch kind of stuff. Yeah. Unfortunately. <clears throat> anyway, so Polanski is still in Europe on Saturday. I'm sorry, on Friday. August the 8th, 1969. The very last phone conversation that he had with Sharon Tate, just one more example of the sweetheart that she was, a little kitten had come in out of the woods up to the door, and she told Roman that she was feeding the cat with an eyedropper to try and nurse it back to health. That's who Sharon Tate was. Oh, 
my goodness. I'm in love with Sharon Tate. She died seven months before I was born, and I'm absolutely in love with Sharon Tate. <laughs> and will be until the day I die. <laughs> so let's get to the bad part. August the 9th, mm-hmm. 1969. Winifred Chapman is the last name I'm going to say today that I haven't said already, I think. <laughs> And she shows up. She's the housekeeper. Okay. She's been working for Sharon and Roman since the previous year when they lived somewhere else. When they moved to Celio Drive, she came over with them. Okay. One of the wisest decisions that Miss Chapman ever made was she turned down an offer from Sharon to spend the night at Celio Drive on that Friday because oh. it was one of the hottest days of the year. She knew that Miss Chapman did not have air conditioning at her house down in the valley and Miss Chapman for whatever reason said, no, I need to go home. I'll see you in the morning. Wow. So the next morning, Miss Chapman shows up for work at eight o'clock. It's Saturday morning. Okay. There's a gate that gets you onto the property that I've watched somebody drive with, a, with their little GoPro camera up Celio drive. It's this winding narrow road. There's a cliff on one side. I'm sorry, a, a mountain on one side and houses dropping off a cliff on the other. It's a very narrow road. Mm-hmm. There's only one way to get there. It's not a through street. It's a dead end. It dead ends at this cul-de-sac and there's a gate, an electric gate there that you have to hit a button with your finger to open to mm-hmm. get into the property. So Miss Chapman does that and she noticed this. She notices that there's a, there's a white Nash Rambler 1966 model sitting in a weird place, sort of in the middle of the driveway. Okay. And she thinks, well, that's odd, but not so much because people are in and out of Celio drive all the time. They have a lot of friends. They have a lot of parties, people hang out. So whatever she walks to the house and goes into the service entrance. She uses a spare key that she knows is hidden on a rafter above the door. She walks into the kitchen, into the dining room, and she starts to notice that things don't look exactly the way that they should. Not the way she left them yesterday when she walked out of that house at 4.30 after she'd cleaned it all day. Okay. Because today is the day of Sharon Tate's baby shower, if okay. I didn't mention that. Ugh. And the other thing that she talked to Roman Polanski about on the phone yesterday was, do you want me to throw you a birthday party on your birthday, which is August the 18th? And that's also the day that the baby is due. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, he says, yeah, let's have a party. Wow. So, the baby, I mean. She is eight and a half months pregnant. Okay. She's, yeah. She's very pregnant. And we'll, we'll talk some more about that next week. But, okay. yeah, she's very pregnant. So, Miss Chapman walks into the living room and she starts to see what looks like maybe might be blood on the carpet. There's a, there's a bloody towel in a pile. Mm. beside the couch Mm -hmm. that french door i'm sorry that dutch kitchen door is wide open the word pig is written on the bottom half of that door and she looks out that open door and sees the dead body of frakowski we we figure out later okay that's all she sees Brakowski, that is Polanski's friend. That's the friend of uh, Roman Polanski who has been staying there at Roman's request. He and Abigail have been staying at the house until Roman gets back from London Mm -hmm. because Sharon's eight and a half months pregnant. Let's keep an eye on her. Yeah. Yeah. So 
They've been staying there. They stayed in the house the entire time that both of them were in Europe. Okay. So now Sharon's back. They're still there. They're going to move out next week when Roman returns from London. Okay. That's the plan. All right. But they're still there that night. And so Miss Chapman sees the body on the lawn. She runs screaming back down the driveway. And it's a, it's a 50 or 60 yard driveway from the edge of the house to where the gate is. So she's running and screaming and yelling the whole time. She passes that white car again on the other side of the car this time. And she sees another dead body inside the car. Oh, my. And who is that? That is an 18-year-old man named Stephen Parent. Uh, I am going to say one more name today, I guess. Oh, there you go. But he, all of the luck that Miss Chapman used up to not be there that night, she took it away from Stephen Parent, apparently, because he was just there by absolute, total happenstance. Oh, no. He had stopped to visit with the 19-year-old friend of his who was the caretaker in Altobelli's house down at the guest house. Okay. They hung out for a little while. He tried to sell him a clock radio. This guy was into electronics. It doesn't matter. But he hung out with him for a little while. They had a beer together. He left about 12.15 or 12.30, somewhere in there. So it's the early morning hours. We figure out later when everybody pieces this all together. That's when the crime took place. Okay. Oh, one thing that I forgot to mention, when Miss Chapman got to the gate, she thought it was odd that all of the phone lines had been cut from the pole right beside the gate and were laid over the gate itself. Mm-hmm. So one of the things she did before she saw uh, Frakowski's body was she picked up the phone. Sure enough, it's dead. Mm-hmm. So she knows she can't call the cops from that house. So that's why she's running down the driveway. And that's a little something that dates this crime. Yeah. The... the the idea of cutting the phone lines mm-hmm. now is very strange. So yeah, the phone cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> the right. phone line is just out and about. Just hanging yeah, there, there, there were four phone lines going into the house and all four of them had been cut. Somebody knew what they were doing when they cut the phone lines. Cause they didn't want them calling. They didn't the want to take any chances that, you know, there might be more people in they the house than they could help. corral yeah. and they could get some help up there before they did what they went to do that night. Right. Well, I guess if you see four phone lines, that would mean, Four separate phones in the house? I think so. That's that's what I took it to mean because later they repaired two of the phone lines. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I assume at the time you had to run a separate phone line for however many phones yeah. you had in the house. And you've got a really secluded house. It's up, out in the middle of nowhere. So you yeah. cut those phone lines and you've cut off That's it. all access. And there's nobody around who can even get to your property. Nobody's going to see what goes on in that house. Like I said earlier, the sound plays tricks on you up in Benedict Canyon, they figured out later. The kid who was in the guest house, he thought he heard something that sounded like firecrackers a few minutes after his friend, Stephen Parent, got in his car to drive down the driveway. But you can't see the driveway from the guest house. So he just threw up his arms and said, probably nothing. I'm going to bed. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think he stayed up all night writing letters and listening to music. But still, he didn't hear or see anything. And he's in the guest house. He's in the guest house. It's about 60 feet away from... He's very lucky. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things he said. They hauled him in and uh, charged him with murder that day. Sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the first thing he says is, "Why why didn't I get murdered too? Mm Mm-hmm. And they, they don't believe him yet. Mm-hmm. Right. They think he did this, but yep. I'm like, whatever, kid, you're going down for this. You know, the, the, the bad cop, worst cop routine. And it's really interesting to think that he might have gone down for this crime had Charlie Manson not wanted to take credit for it. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, you know. Right? Isn't well, that kind of the way it, it went? Uh, sort of. Sort of? We'll get to that next week. Okay, sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. It's okay. All right, so what else? What else did we find? We've got two dead bodies Yes, so, so she sees Stephen Parent's body in the, in the car. Mm-hmm. She opens the gate one more time. Okay. Goes to the house nearest to her. Bangs on the door. She's screaming. Yeah. Nobody comes to the door at the first house. She goes to the second house. She's banging on the door. She screams murder, death, bodies, blood. Like she can just get out words. Like, yes. I'm sure she's she probably is, She had to be taken sorta. to UCLA Medical Center and sedated. I'm sure. When the cops got a hold of her yeah, a few minutes I'm later. I'm sure she did. So she screams that out loud. The young man who lives in the house that she has stopped at, as, as the kid's dad comes out to see what the hell's going on, He's, a, he's an Eagle Scout in training. And one of the things that they teach Eagle Scouts, apparently, I was never one myself, but apparently they teach you to be precise. And so he wrote down what time it was, and that was 8.33 a.m. on Saturday, August the 9th, 1969. How about that, an Eagle Scout? And, and so next week when we fire this one up again, we will tell you about the things that Miss Chapman did not see in the floor at 10050 Celio Drive, which included the dead bodies of Sharon Tate, Mm -hmm. age 26, and Jay Sebring, age 35. Oh, my goodness. Cliffhanger. I mean, you did it again, Scott. Yep, yep. Everybody go research this. Just to that part, though. Yeah. Don't don't read it. Look at the house. Check out some pictures of the house. I'm going to. Kind of get the lay of the land to help you understand the... Just how this all played out. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll understand it a lot better. There's a lot of great aerial photos that they took that day. They got up in a police helicopter and mm-hmm. shot just rolls and rolls of film to try and document this as best they could. And you know we'll uh, we'll get into that next week. We'll talk about Manson next week. We'll talk about the murder scene some more. We'll talk about the LaBianca murders, mm-hmm. and then we'll get to the trial on down the road. Yeah, go ahead and get you a copy of Helter Skelter ordered. You can read it after next week's episode. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. That's all I got, guys, for today. Well, thank you, Scott, and guys, join us next week. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Visit our website, TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet.com, mm-hmm. for more information about us and how to access our podcast, our social media, merch, any of those kinds of things. Right? Yeah, yeah. Don't forget we have T-shirts, and don't forget to email us at TrueCrimeOnEasyStreet at gmail.com with your favorite case that we can cover. Yeah, yeah. Something we haven't done that you want us to hear. We're trying to get all the big ones. I mean, if we're going to be a true crime podcast, we've got to do the big ones, right? And I mean, this and is a big one today. Spooky season is a, it's coming up. <sighs> so right. it's, coming it's up. our time. Yeah, I think you've got something planned for Halloween though, right? I do. Okay. And I can't believe all these years, now we know there's an Alabama tie I know. To the, to the Manson family murders. This is what I do. Oh, wow. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> You're now back to meh. Yay! You're no longer mediocre. I love it. I'm going to get a shirt made. Uh Uh-huh, meh. Good night, everybody.